Hi Derby County fans, Malcolm Christie here. Hope you're all well. Just a quick message just to let you know that I'm coming back to Derby uh, this summer. Uh, I'm doing a live Talk Derby to Me on Monday the 23rd of August at 7.30pm where you can come and ask me any questions you like about my football career, my Derby County days, uh, the Premiership years and Jim Smith etc. Contact Talk Derby to me on social media, message the page, they'll be able to sort your tickets out, or Blake Fallows on social media as well, who's holding the event. Look forward to seeing you all soon. Cheers. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to my uh, first ever podcast, the first one I'm going to do. Uh, and I have a very, very special guest. I've got Paul Simpson with me, the only England manager who has won anything for 55 years with England, uh, won the Under-20 World Cup. Um, thank you very much, Paul, for, for joining me. Pleasure, Jakob. Good to um, speak to you. Thank you. Thank you. And, and how are you? How, how's your health? Uh, how are you these days? Are, are you OK? Yeah, I, well, I'm, I'm surprisingly, I'm feeling fine. I've got a little bit of a health scare going on at the moment. Um, I was diagnosed about two weeks ago with cancer on my kidney, um, which I will be having removed um, in sort of towards the end of July. But um, I'm fine health-wise. I feel perfectly fine. I've got no symptoms. I'm not feeling ill. Um, I feel very well. Um, it's just something I've got to get dealt with um, as soon as possible, and hopefully that'll be the end of it. And uh, maybe by the time um, this podcast's going out, I would like to think that I'll be back on the grass and, and back working at Bristol City again. Yes, that's good to hear, Paul. And uh, we'll definitely keep our fingers crossed that everything goes well. But uh, what I want to talk to you about is something uh, uh, a bit uh, more positive. Uh, the Euros mm. has just finished and uh, I think England uh, did really well, even though that I thought in some of the games they had a bit a negative approach to the to the game with some of the, the great players uh, uh, they have in the in the squad. What did what what is your thoughts about uh, England's campaign? Well, I think overall, I think there's a hell of a lot of positives that we can take out of it. Um, I think um, that there's a, a, a continuity with with having Gareth in charge there in that he's trying to, we're, we're trying to learn every tournament we go through. We're trying to develop um, a mentality for the players to be able to deal with major tournaments <coughs> because it, it, that's, that's a big challenge for players when they haven't experienced it before it's a big challenge to stay through to the later stages, you know, and, and you said earlier, you know, for England, that that's the first final that our senior team have got to in a major tournament since, you know, 1966. And that's an incredible length of time to, to, to be waiting for it. So I think there was a lot of positives. The real big thing was actually getting to the final and, um, and I think the players will learn from, from the experience that they've had of it. Obviously, there's still major disappointment in, in, the, um, in, in the way that we lost. But I think, in truth, on the, on the night, Italy were the better team. They, they were the ones who controlled the game a bit better than we did. Um, but as I said, I'm hoping that the players will learn from that and they'll be better the next time they get that experience of, of playing in a major, major tournament, semi-final and final. Um, I think we've shown um, that we can compete with the best, you know, to come up against Germany and to come up against Denmark and, and beat them on on, a, on the night. And, and, you know, to take Italy, who are a really good side, you know, everybody, everybody talked about, oh, it's England at home, we're going to win. They haven't been beaten for 33 games, Italy. Now, that doesn't happen by chance. They've obviously got something going right for them. And um, I thought we, we did OK on the night without doing enough to win it. So let's hope the signs are really positive for the future. Yeah, and when you look from outside and you look at the, the England squad, uh, I also think you have like a, a lot of young players, uh, really some that you can build on and, and you so you can progress in, in the future. Is that something that uh, I know you've been in, in within the England um, uh, teams and, and been a manager for the under-20s? Is that something that you're aware of uh, within the FA that you actually do a lot to, to progress these young, uh, great players that you have? Yeah, without a doubt. It's something... 
you know, going back um, probably about 10 years now, I think it'll be, the, the FA had a bit of a review of what's going on with the national teams um, from the development teams all the way through to the seniors. And they realised that the players weren't getting enough exposure to, to playing against top international countries. Um, at the schoolboy age, they played in a thing called the Victory Shield, which put them against Wales, Scotland and Ireland every year, which were great, really competitive games all very similar styles of football. So what they did, they changed it and they then suddenly um, brought teams. So they have a, a 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20s, 21s, and then seniors. So they, they formed teams in every age group and they, they, they invested really heavily, <coughs> not only in St. George's Park, but in allowing the teams to go and play against um Portugal, Spain, Denmark, uh, France, Italy. Um, I was involved with the under-16s when I first joined the FA and we had a trip over to Brazil and we played a doubleheader against Brazil in Rio, which was a fantastic experience for me as a coach, you know, to go and be able to, to play against the Brazilian under-16s. And I just think what a great experience that is for the players as well, to be able to go and pitch themselves against that style of football. And I think the players have now got a, a better understanding of what's required, not only um, technically and tactically, but also physically, also meant the mentality of it. You know, you, you, you see when you go, you know, we, we went to, uh, when we went over to South Korea, we, we had a, a trip out there to prepare for the World Cup. And the way that, that their gamesmanship, that the South Koreans, they were absolutely fantastic at it. And some people call it cheating, but I don't believe it is cheating. It's just managing the game and doing things their way. And we had to learn how to be able to deal with it because at first our players were losing their head. They're getting angry. They're shouting. They're arguing with referees. And we're saying, you may as well come and sit in the dugout with us if you're going to do that. You have to learn to cope with that and let the referee deal with it himself. So then when we went to the World Cup, we were more experienced and we were developed in learning how to deal with it. And we we lost in the game on the on our recce over there on the preparation camp, but we beat them 1-0 in a, in a really decisive group game, um, which helped us to move forward in the World Cup. So all of these things are all part of the development. And then you hope that they've got the experience that when they come through and they've experienced a major tournament with a development team, whether that be 17s, 19s, who won, 17s won the World Cup, 19s won the Euros, 20s that I was with won the World Cup. Then they go to the 21s and they're experiencing Euro Championship finals and, and, and games that, you know, really, really matter. That You hope that they've got the a little bit of tools in the toolbox to be able to cope with um, senior tournaments. And that's what we've seen on this one as well, I think. Yeah. You talk about how you've done it at, uh, at the FA level. Um, we are played uh, through the ranks in, in Denmark for, for all the national teams there. And that's what they prepare, how they prepared us uh, to do well in the tournaments as well. But in Denmark, also at club level, that change things. Is, is that something that uh, the FA is also aware of in England, that they have to maybe change how they do the tournaments from your like, yeah, even six, seven years old, where we in Denmark, we play 3v3 and then it's 5v5 and 8v8. And then you you don't play 11v11 till you're about 14, 15 years old. Yeah, it's uh, definitely... Is that something they're also aware of? Yeah, definitely. Um, it changed when they... Um, they brought a document out called the EPPP, so the Elite Player Performance Plan. Um, and you'll have to excuse me because I don't know what year it was brought out, but a good few years ago, they changed the whole academy setup. And um, you, you had to show that you had a playing philosophy going through the whole of the academy. So you couldn't just... You couldn't just turn up one day and go, oh, we're playing against Manchester United. Let's just go and launch it forward and kick lumps out of them and, and see if we can smash them to pieces. It, it's not a case of that. You have to show you've got a philosophy. But also, um, they changed it in that from, um, I mean, in England, you can only really start playing structured games with a, with a, a club at under eight level. So you can do under eights. You can only sign players at under nine level. Um, so at, at eight and nine year old, they can sign for the clubs and they play small sided games. So it's seven V sevens. And I think it's about under 12s now where they go to an 11 V 11 game. 
But I've got to say, even at under 12, you could have some physically underdeveloped boys, girls who, who are not big enough to play on a full-size pitch, to play with full-size goals. <coughs> you know, I've seen goalkeepers who can't actually reach the crossbar. And you go up against them and you know that you just have to lift it that high into top corners and the goalkeeper's got no chance of saving. And that's psychologically, that's not a great thing for the boys to be going through. Um, sorry, I keep talking about boys. I know there's girls play as well, but I'm, I'm involved with, with boys. So I'll, I'll sort of try and stick to that. Um, yeah. So it, it, it's really difficult um, to, to get the balance. But unfortunately, and I don't know whether this is the same that you have in Denmark, Jacob, Everybody wants to win things over here. It's all about winning the league, winning the cup, when really it shouldn't be about that at younger age group. And, you know, my own story, when it came to the World Cup, we, we had little challenges for the players because when we went into the World Cup finals with the under-20s, we hadn't won a World Cup finals game with England for something like 24 years, I think it was. And we hadn't won consecutive games for 28 years. So my, little, my first challenge to the group, in fact, the last two World Cup finals, they hadn't even scored a goal. So my first challenge to was never talked about um, going and winning the game. My first challenge was, can you score a goal? Can you actually score a goal in the World Cup finals and see where it takes us? So the first game would beat um, Argentina. Um, really tough game. We scored three goals. So we, we'd achieved our first goal of, of actually scoring. Then the next game, I said to them, well, we've never won two consecutive games. Are you capable of doing that? They then, we then drew the next game against Guinea. So I said, well, you still haven't achieved what we set out to do. And that was to try and get two consecutive wins. <coughs> so we played the third game, the one against Korea, and we beat them 1-0. So we'd achieved it. So then I'm sort of saying, right, well, how long can we stay here then? I never talked about winning the tournament. The first time I mentioned winning was on the day of the final when I gave them the final messages and we'd had a letter off the Royal off Buckingham Palace from Prince William and I read the letter out to them and some really nice messages from everybody all over the world. And I just said to them, we've come this far, should we go and have a go at winning? And that was the first time I even talked about it. But in our country, we just have this mentality that even at under fives and under six, let's get a trophy. And it's not really about that. It's about the development of players. And I think that's what, I think we go away from that a little bit. And I don't know whether that's the same all over the world, but it certainly is here anyway. Yeah, I mean, in Denmark, uh, it was like that, uh, actually, until we got uh, a new um, uh, manager for the national team back, uh, I think it was uh, around 2000. Uh, okay. Morten Olsen, who's uh, one of uh, yeah. the record holder of Danish uh, national games and that. And he changed it so nobody could win a championship or cup until we got to, I think it was under 15. Okay. Because, because they wanted to develop players to play football. So it's like now uh, where I coach like uh, young boys at, at under eight now, and we have like the goalkeeper can't kick the ball. He yeah. has to pass it out from the back. And when we play 5v5, he has to be on more or less the halfway line. So he's the fifth player that they can pass to. And I think that's a philosophy that they've got at a lot of clubs in Denmark. I know mm. some still want to win and that. But also another thing we do in Denmark, we try to develop the coaches so they get better. It's, it's all good to say, oh, we want parents to coach the kids, but we also have to teach the parents how to become good coaches. And I think that's yeah. a, a thing in Denmark we're really good at. Mm. But what strikes me from what you say there is that I, I listened to how you did it when you went to Korea and, and that, and it sounds like me, it's like a, a modern they leader like you, you do it in a different way uh, and when I look at the Euros you look at the four teams getting into the semi-finals they're all they've like created a good atmosphere uh, the way they control and lead the team is like how modern business leader would do and is that something that you have to bring into to football nowadays um, to to do it in, in a different way I think it is. I mean, if, if you think back to our days where Jim Smith was our manager and he was, uh, you know, as although, you know, I, I absolutely loved Jim to bits. He was a, a, a real proper fella who I, I, I had so much respect for. 
um, who sadly passed away recently. Um, but he was like a dictator, the way he, you know, if you think of some of the times he came in at half time and he unleashed his anger onto us at half time, was, um, it was a bit hair raising. Now, there is no way you can do that to players nowadays. Every now and again, you can go in with a stick and you can go and have a go at them, but players don't react to that anymore. That's not that's not what ticks the boxes for players now. You have to go, there's a, a, there's a much more gentle approach to it, um, a calmer approach to it. And what we tried to do at the FA was we, we tried to get the players to take ownership of the of the pre-match analysis of the opponents of the of, of, of take take ownership on the pitch so if they recognize a problem do something about it themselves don't be always looking over to the dugout because they're in the thick of it they know what they know what's going on and we try to develop this from a young age from under 15s and under 16s we we get this so we to start with we you know say for example we're playing Brazil we would show uh, maybe seven minutes of clips of Brazil in possession and seven minutes out of possession, <coughs> show these to the players in little small groups and go, right, come on then, tell us what you see. Tell us what you see Brazil do. And it might be, well, they want to build from the back, so the two centre-backs are dropped down. Look at where the two full-backs are going. They push really high to the halfway line. Okay, well, what does that do to the wide players? Well, they come in off the line and play quite narrow okay so what happens if if you know if, if we allow them to play what will they do and the players basically come up with the game plan so we say to them you've seen it so how do you want to play against that then do you want to allow them to do that do you want to go and press high against them do you want to go into a mid block and we get the players to try and understand what that means for them when it comes to playing on the pitch so then, for example, we might prepare that Brazil are going to go and build from the back and two centre-backs are going to drop down and we're going to go and press with our front three. And suddenly in the game, Brazil's two centre-backs sprint out to the halfway line and, and they've got to learn. We, we can't be on the sideline saying, no, forget the, forget the game plan. It's all changed. They're gonna, they've got to understand what that means to them. How do, they, how do they adapt their game to be able to cope with what the opposition are going to do? And we felt that... Um, we felt as though there was a really getting to be a really good understanding of what it might be. Um, and then the way I would do it at half time when I would go in, I would always give them a few minutes just to let off some steam, go to the toilet, maybe get a drink, maybe get strappings, whatever it might be. And then I would go in and say, OK, tell me what you think. Then what have you seen so far? You know, as the game does, the game plan have to change. Are they doing what we expected? Are we doing what we wanted? And I get them to feed it back to me. And some of the, we had one. We were in North Macedonia playing in an under 19 Euros. And I went in at half time. We were winning, I think we were winning 1 0 at the time. And I went in and I said, okay, fellas, what, what are you seeing? What do you think? And one of the players, a lad, Tommy Doyle at Manchester City, he just said, well, I think this Simo. I think we're, we're allowing them to get out too easy from the back. I think we need to push our two wide players a bit higher, get our nine to drop around their controlling midfielder. And it's like, and I stood there and I'm thinking, wow, I don't actually need to say anything. Here. And we have, um, we used to put a Sabutio board and, um, you know, the, the, the children's yeah. game, the Sabutio with the little men on it. And I'd say, well, come on then, show us, show me what you mean. And they would move the bodies around and say, okay, what does that mean for him there? And he'd move him into position. And they're absolutely brilliant, their understanding of the game. And I'm not really sure I had that when I was a player, but the players now are developing that ability to be able to go and see it and actually speak it and relay it to the rest of the team, which I think is a great development for players. Yeah, it sounds really good. And it also put a lot of... Uh... A different demands on, on being a manager nowadays. You and I played, and especially because you played a few years before me, it's easy. A manager could just come in and have a go at the players and go and do that. Uh, nowadays, you have to be think a bit more as a manager what you do and what mm -hmm. you say. You actually try and show them, involve them. How does the players react to that? Because it's not something that, I mean, we're sort of used to it here in Denmark when we are at club level and stuff like that. I'm not saying at senior level, but when we're younger and stuff like that, you seem to talk to, more to the manager and what do you think? And and some of the managers I've had, they also involved us and tried to talk to us to to get for us to take ownership of, of what we were 
doing because that actually helps you when you're on the pitch. You don't want to let somebody down when you said, I'm going to do that. How mm -hmm. is it in England? Because we both know that beforehand it's like, oh, you just do this and you don't come up with ideas. Is that something that the players find difficult to adapt to as well? They do as they get older. It's funny because when you're working with the younger ones, so I was really fortunate to start working with the under 16s at the FA. You can't shut them up. You, they want to just talk and talk and talk. And then when they go to under, and then at, at 15, 16, 17s, it's a little bit like that. Then when they get to under 18s and under 19s, where it's a little bit too cool for school to be speaking up in meetings and they're a little bit embarrassed to do it and 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 to you know to to come out with something that might be wrong and, and everybody will have a laugh at them and I, I made it quite clear that there is no wrong answer because what you see is is what you're seeing and you you have to just be confident enough to say it one of the first things I did when I um, when I got given the job with the under 20s they'd already qualified for the world cup finals and and We had the change around at the FA and I was really fortunate that they asked me to take the 20s. And we had a camp in, um, in the international window in March and we're over in France. So I, I got um, what I used to call a, like an experienced leadership group, which sounds a bit daft experience because they're all the same age at under 20 and they're all in the same age bracket. But they're, they're sort of a group of players who've been through the whole system from 16s onwards. And I said to them, right, come on and tell me, tell me how you want me to run this group. How do you want me to be the head coach of this group? And, you know, I'm, I'm not for, you don't have to call me gaffer. I'm Simo, I'm Paul, whatever you want to do. It's, I don't, don't do it like that. So how do you want me to run it? Tell me what you want. And the first thing they said was, can we just get rid of all the meetings? And I was like, well, what meetings don't you want to do? They said, well, we don't want to have to look at the opposition. Can't you just tell us what they're going to do? And, and you tell us how we're going to play against them. And I went, no, no, I'm not. Because that's not, that's not how we're trying to do it at the FA. I want you to understand what the game is. I said, because when we're playing in, in France and there's 8,000 in a little small stadium watching us, I can't actually get the information onto you on the far side of the pitch, what I want to do. You've got to understand it yourself. You have to learn how to do it. And to be fair, they were like, okay. So I, we worked out a way. So we ended up, I don't know, we'd say we would have three separate meetings for set plays. I would then reduce that to maybe one meeting if we could get it done in one meeting or we'd, we'd, we'd only have one analysis meeting of the opposition instead of spreading it over two or three. So we, we sort of got them all into one, but we still got the information to them and, and, and they actually still told us the information. And so they, they were really good with it all. So in England, players are reluctant to speak out But as you then get, as they start to get older and more experienced, that they're more confident to be able to do it. They're more confident in their knowledge of the game. But I also will say, you know, I've been really fortunate to work with, with some foreign players when I've been at Derby County and, um, and at Newcastle United. And some of the, I mean, we're talking about top players, people like Ginny Wijnaldum from Holland, You know, he's, his knowledge of the game was absolutely magnificent. And you say to Jeannie, what are you thinking in this then, Jeannie? And he could talk for half an hour about how he was going to deal with this tactical problem that we might be getting against somebody. And he could just reel it all off. And he was so, it came so natural to him. So I think we are getting better in our country, but I do still think we have a little bit of a way to catch up. But it's something that we're definitely working on. I know that it's what Gareth and Steve Holland do with the seniors. They have unit meetings where the players players join in and they, they give their, their input into it. And I think it's really important. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, now we talked a lot about England and stuff like that, but um, I'd also like to hear about you, Paul. Like When you played football, were you thinking... Oh, Oh, when I finish playing football, I'm, I want to go into to management. Or was it something that came by fault? Or uh, I saw some of your, your earlier jobs as a, as a manager, was a playing manager. Mm. Was it just something that happened or, or did you plan it for a long time? Um, it's funny, really, because when I was a player at Oxford, so we're going back a long time. I think we must be talking about the 1990s. Um, 
when I was about 24, I think it was, I went, um, I was playing at Oxford United and I was doing, you know, when you do the football in the community stuff and you have to go in and take a PE lesson or you have to go and coach a local team and stuff like that. I was doing that. And I, I realised I hadn't got a clue what I was doing. I didn't, you know, I was turning up and not really knowing. So I took what was at the time your preliminary coaching badge. I took that when I was 24. Um, and only with that in mind, not because I was thinking I'm going to be a coach one day. I took it just so that I could be a little bit more knowledgeable when I was going and coaching local teams. So I did that. Then I never did anything more. Um, and then... While I was a player at Derby County, I took my coaching badges, um, my, my B licence, and uh, hadn't started my A licence there. So my C licence, sorry, I'm a B licence. I took them um, and I got involved coaching with Derby County's academy, taking under nines and under tens and doing that. And I was, I was enjoying that. And then I then moved to Wolves. Um, I decided to start doing a sports science degree because I I realised I could do the coaching, I could do all the organisation. But I just felt that when I stopped playing, there was going to be lots of players who would have some sort of coaching badge, but not everybody would have an honours degree in sports science as well. So I decided to try and get a bit of knowledge about the, the biological system, the biomechanics of how people move, the physiological side of it, um, the diet, the nutrition. I, I decided to get a little bit of knowledge into all of that. Started doing a course and thought, well, I'll take a higher education certificate and drop out then. Then it was, well, I might get a diploma if I stay another two years. So I stayed two more and then it was get a degree. And then Jackie, my wife, persuaded me to stay for the fifth year and do a get it to an honours degree. So I ended up five years later coming out with an honours degree in sports science and thinking, wow, how have I done that? You know, how have I managed to do it? So that alongside all of my coaching badges put me in a position where I wanted to probably develop younger players as opposed to be a manager. I still wasn't considering being a manager. I had had a conversation with um, with Jim Smith when I was still at Derby about being a manager. And he, his advice to me was, are you worried about getting the sack? And I went, no, not at all. He said, right, that's the only thing you need to worry about in management because you will get the sack. Um, as long as you can cope with that, you'll be fine. <coughs> so anyway, I carried on doing all my coaching at Derby County. I then moved from Derby to Wolves, carried it on, moved Wolves to Blackpool, um, and I moved up into the, the Northwest area and, and ended up coaching at Blackburn Rovers Academy, this time coaching under eights, um, which, as you said, is the age group you're doing. So you learn you learn skills. I know, I know what to do on a, on a coaching session. I know how to set the session up. I know how to let it flow. You then have to learn how to be really, really organised because if you're not organised with under eights, they're going to be climbing trees, they're going to be fighting, there's going to be crying, they've got shoelaces undone. You have to be so organised. And then from there, I, um, I I suddenly got thrown into a situation where the, I went, I'd moved to Rochdale as a player now and um, at the end of the season, I was starting to get into a process of writing out my CV and trying to get interviews, not particularly because I wanted a job, but just because as a footballer, you never have to do an interview. <clears throat> and I knew that one day I would need to. So I applied for jobs, didn't get an interview. And one of the jobs I'd applied for was Rochdale before I went there as a player. And the manager, had, um, we'd just lost in a playoff semi-final and we were at a player of the year doing the chairman came up to me and said, would you still be interested in being the manager here? And I'm, nobody had ever mentioned it to me. I went, I don't know what you're talking about, Chairman. What do you mean? He said, well, you applied for it last time, didn't you? Um, and I know you didn't get it, but would you still be interested? And I said, well, what about our manager? Is he not? What's going on there? He said, no, made a decision today. He's asking for too much money. He will not be the manager. We are starting the applications um, as of tomorrow morning. Would you be interested? So I said, well, I'd really like to have an interview with you because I've never done that before. So <clears throat> had an interview. They offered me the job and I'm thinking, wow, what do I do here? Then I, I actually still want to carry on playing. I've never really thought of myself as being a manager and I don't particularly think I'm ready to be a manager. But then I also thought I might never get another opportunity if I turn this down. So I chose to do it. Um, I told them at the time, um, funny enough, that the chairman, who it was, a guy called David Kilpatrick, 
I've just had a card from him wishing me all the best. And I've never spoken to him since the day that I got the sack at Rochdale. But we didn't fall out. Um, it was just one of those things. So I went in, I told them, yes, I'll take it. I don't think I'm ready to be a manager. I'm going to need so much help. Um, I can do the football, but the rest of it, I've never managed a group of people. I've never, you know, I've never actually coached senior players. <coughs> so please be prepared. I'm going to make some mistakes. And they said, no, we'll give you all the help you need. Don't you worry about it. And I literally got the job. And then it was if the sort of closed the boardroom door and it was, go on, get on with it. You deal with it. You make mistakes. You get abuse. Um, so I had a year there. And I've got to say, we started really, really well. I, I was trying to juggle playing and management and scouting and looking after the club and dealing with everything. And I've got to say, I, I burnt myself out by about November. I was absolutely shattered and didn't do myself any favours. But then I took myself out of the team. I was at the time, um, and I'm not wishing to do it to blow my own trumpet, but I was leading goal scoring team. I was still playing all right. But I was really floundering when it came to the management side of it. And I felt as though I needed to come out of the team to see if I could get players to step up and also to try and develop myself. So I took myself out. <coughs> um, we did OK first half of the season, getting to the FA Cup. We had a fantastic run in the FA Cup where we got through to the fifth round lost against Wolves in a live TV game. So we made about £600,000 in an FA Cup run, which the club were just delighted about. They offered me a two-year contract, um, an extension to it. And I, I made, well, no, with hindsight, it was the right thing to do. Um, I said to them, look, we've got loads of games. I ain't worried about me. Just put my contract on the back burner. We'll pick that up at the right time when games settle down and I'll sign it then. I'm not doing it to be clever, but... Let's deal with the football. So then once we got knocked out of the cup, our results started to go down and down and we were struggling and we had a really bad run. Come to the end of the season and they called me in and said, look, we'd like you to still sign your contract, but we're going to choose your staff for you. We're not happy with your staff. And I said, no, the staff's not the problem. I'm not prepared to accept that. And they said, well, it's your choice. Either we choose your staff and you have a two-year contract or you leave. So after giving it a bit of thought, I spoke. To, I only had two two coaches with me, to be honest with you. I spoke to them both and said, "Look, I might have to sack you tomorrow um, if I decide overnight that it's the right thing for me to stay at this club, and one of you has to go. I'm really sorry, but that's the decision I'm going to have to make." And, and to be fair, both of them said, "No, really respect your honesty. Thank you very much. Um, let's see what you think." And then overnight, after speaking to Jackie and and other people who I value their opinions I thought no this is a real test for me as a as a manager because I need to have people around me who I believe are the right people not somebody else dictating it so I ended up leaving um, and, and I left to go um, I was thinking I was going to go back as a player went to Carlisle United just as a player um, Roddy Collin was the manager and, and I said to him I, I just want to play again don't want to think about anything else and he got sacked early after about three games and I got given the job on a caretaker and then on the permanent and it's amazing because I went from being thinking I want to be a coach working in academies and developing players to suddenly I'm on this merry-go-round of football management and uh, and you don't actually know how it's all happened, but I was fully in the thick of it. And and then everything seems to snowball from there. Oh, sounds interesting. You talk about like how you call somebody to, to get their opinion on how to, to yeah say yes or no to, to this extension. Is that some of the people who might have uh, had an influence on how you as a manager or was it just good friends or, or, no. or how do you look at it? Is there some managers who's had a bigger influence? No, I think it was more, at that time, it was more just good friends who I spoke to. Um, and it was really funny as well, because when I, um, th that decision was made about Rochdale, but when it came to a point where I, I'd done a, about a month as caretaker at Carlisle and, and they offered me the job permanently and, We sat down as a family. We, we sat down for dinner. We used to sit down and eat every single time we could as a family together. And, and we had this one night where I said to Jackie, you know, I'm going to speak to the boys about it tonight, about being offered the Carlisle job. So I sat down and said to them, right, listen, fellas, um, 
Daddy's been offered the job at Carlisle. What do you think? And they were like, they were only young. I mean, I don't even know what year it was I was manager at Carlisle, to be honest with you. But <laughs> they were quite young, all still in school. Um, some of them in junior, some of them in, uh, one of them in senior. And they just said, we don't want you to do it. We don't want you to be a manager. And I was like, oh, wow, wow. And Carlisle's my home city. So I said, oh, boys, this, yeah. is, this is where I'm from. I supported these as a kid. And they're like, we don't want it, Dad. We, we don't like what it did to you. We don't like how it affected your life, how you weren't able to have time to come and watch us. And we never see you. And when results are not good, you're not very happy. And I, I know when somebody, it's as if somebody smacked me over the back of the head with a stick, you sort of go, wow, I didn't even know I was doing that. I didn't realise how much it was affecting my life. So we ended up having a conversation about, okay, how should I do it then? Tell me how you think I should be a manager if I'm going to do it. And we ended up having this discussion, well, you know, you need to give us Sundays as a family, so you need to, you know, when you can, come and watch us play and if you can be there on a night to take us to training and stuff, because they're all doing sport all over the place. I mean, Jackie was like a taxi driver, just ferrying them here, there and everywhere. And and we ended up coming with a plan how how it needed to be done differently, really. Um, so as well as speaking to good friends, eventually speaking to football, uh, people in football, it was actually my family as well who said, we need to think about it this way. And, you know, for three young lads to, to come out with that was was really good and was a, a bit of an education for me, really, and a bit of a slap across the face that you need to sort yourself out, Dad, if you're gonna if you're gonna say in this mad world of football. Um, and it worked. It was good. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting to to listen to, like you say, it's your family and and what you tell me there is the same you just told me about how you did it with the England team and stuff like that where you actually try and respect the people around you and, and value their their opinion mm. and, and be honest about it not just do it for the sake of doing it I know you don't do that with your family but it's something you carry through to to being a, a manager and a, and a coach mm. um, also have to ask you you were at Derby County we we were both playing together there uh, and stuff like that. Uh, do you still uh, follow Derby a little bit, or yeah, has it of course I do. Now that you're at Bristol City, <laughs> yeah, of course I do. I mean, I still live in the Derby area, um, near to Ashbourne. <coughs> I live out this way. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a club that I've spent a lot of years there. Um, yeah. You know, and, and it, it's always strange in football because when. People say, who do you support? Are you a, a supporter of anybody? Well, I, I'm definitely a supporter of England. I love watching England. Any sport, I'm really patriotic. I love to see England um, competing. Um, but as a football player, you don't really support anybody. Um, I think if I was to say one club, it would be Carlisle because I watched them as a child growing up. <coughs> um, but I don't... When you, So when I was at Derby County, they were the only team that mattered. When I was at Newcastle, they're the only team that matters. Now I'm at Bristol. These are the only team that matter. But you still go and you look at the other team's results and I'm still always keen to know what's going on. You know, on a, on a Saturday evening when I start looking at results and it takes me about half an hour to look at all the teams who I've got a bit of an affinity with because I'm looking at Blackpool, Rochdale, Carlisle, Preston, Shrewsbury. You know, you go through it and I'm like, Jesus, who else have I been involved with? How did they get on today? So... I think I'll always follow them. I'll always follow the results, but I think you just dedicate your time and your energy into the club that you're working for at the time. And and I don't, you know, I, I don't, um, that's not belittling um, anything at all. I've loved my time at clubs, but at this moment in time, Bristol City is the only club that really bothers bothers me. Yeah, I understand that. Um just to come back to Derby, because I, I find it quite interesting, like you told me how you prepared with the England team and stuff like that. And when you were at Derby together with uh, Steve McLaren, you you actually went to the uh, to the playoff finals and stuff mm. like that. How do you actually how do you actually prepare a team uh, to go and play at Wembley at such a big, uh, massive game, who means so much both to the players and the club? Uh, you know. Uh, also financially, it's unbelievable on both sides. How do you mm. do that? Because I understand why how you did it with the uh, under the England under twenty, uh, but how do you do it with the team? Because they must be nervous. The players of going there. Yeah, everybody's nervous. The players, the staff. Um, 
the owners, um, because as you say, it's a huge financial game. The World Cup was slightly different because there was no financial incentives to win that game. That was more about getting a winner's medal at a World Cup and having that on your CV. But when, you, when you're involved with a team that goes to a playoff, we, we, we had a really, I think the big thing you have to have is a consistent plan. You have to be consistent in the way you prepare your team. Um, and, and I'm going to contradict myself a little bit because sometimes you'll play Saturday till Saturday. So you, you have a certain way that you'll go in preparing that. And then sometimes you might play Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday. So you have to adjust your plan. But there's a consistency about the messages there's a consistency about your style of play so so your your philosophy on how you want to play and from the first day that, that we went into Derby County there was myself um obviously Steve in charge and Eric Steele we were really consistent about how we prepared the players what messages we gave to them afterwards when we were reviewing games and what the feedback was how we were giving it so it was more about uh, positive messages. We've done this really well. Yeah, we might have lost, but we've done this really well. And if we keep doing this, we'll be successful. So there was a consistency about that. Consistency about our shape, how we wanted to play. We wanted to play from the back and build through the third, through through a control room midfield, whether that be John Eustace or George Thorne. The next season, it was a guy we took on loan from Real Madrid, Omar Mascarell. So we, we, we had a, a consistent style of play. And I think that's the important thing now. When you then go into a playoff semi-final and you, you then get to a final, if you suddenly rip everything up and go totally different, the players are going to go, whoa, what's going on here? This is not what we've done. So we tried to just keep it level all the way through. And I always remember having a conversation with Sir Dave Brailsford, the, uh, the, the UK cycling um, coach, who is a top, top guy, um, Derby County fan, lives in the area. And he used to come in for a coffee and I used to find it fascinating. Steve would say to me something, he'd come in to see Steve, obviously. And Steve would say, oh, I just need to get something done. Can you just have a coffee with Dave and keep him company before I go? So I'm like, oh, yes, thank you very much. You know, 30 minutes with Dave Brailsford, brilliant. And we were, we were going to a, a phase where we were coming towards the end of the season. And we were taught, myself and Steve were talking that, do you think we need to really emphasise the importance of this next run of games? Because do you think they realise how close they are to achieving something? And we couldn't quite decide whether we should really go and throw this at them and basically put more pressure on. So I'm sat having a coffee with Dave and he said to me, what do you think? Well, how's it going? Yeah, yeah. So there's any problems? I went, well, we're just having this debate about should we go and tell the players about the importance of this run of games and where it could take us? And he went, oh, well, he said, why, is that what you've done all season? Have you been telling them that it's about promotion, it's about playoffs and you need this, you need to do this, you need to that? I said, no, not at all. It's it's been um, it's been quite quite level with what we've been doing. He said, Well, so it's worked, hasn't it, this season? I went, Yeah, yeah, we're really pleased. He went, So why are you gonna change? He said, Do you think they're stupid? Do you think they realise? Do you think they don't realise that this is for promotion to the Premier League? I said, Oh no, they know. He said, Right, well, don't be daft. You don't change anything. You just keep doing the same things. And again, it takes somebody like that to say, whoa, why are you changing everything? Just just do it as you've been doing because it's working. Now, obviously, on the day against uh, QPR, it didn't work because we conceded a late goal and, and you end up losing. But there were so many positive things that we did that we could then take it into the next season and, and keep that consistency and, and keep doing what we're doing. And, and that's that's the big thing that I think you have to have. And again, jumping back to the FA, that's what we had. We had a consistent plan of this is how we're going to play. Um, we want to play this way. And we would say to the players, OK, so this is what we want to do. What if they press with two, two strikers? What do you do differently? Oh, well, in that case, then we'll go wider and we drop a controller into midfield around the edge of the ball. OK, what if they go with three? Well, we might have to bring two midfielders in there and have some rotate. So they come up with the answers. They have to learn how to do it because they're the ones who are on the grass affecting it. And we had this consistency all the way through from 15s through to, well, certainly through to 20s. Um, it was slightly different to under 21 level. And they they sort of went on their own on, on their own way, really. But certainly from 15s to 20s, we had a real consistent message all the way through. Fine. What do you say? Uh, I know I'm, I'm laughing a bit. 
It's like what you say is basically don't let your emotions control what you do. Stick to mm. the plan and that. Yeah. Is uh, is is that something some of the owners of the football clubs in the in the Premier League, the Championship, and stuff like that could learn a bit from that. Like you say, a lot of I know you're laughing, but for me, it seems sometimes it's like you actually have a good manager, you have good coaches, and that they have a plan. And for everybody, it goes up and sometimes it goes down. Mm-hmm. And I think some of the owners forget that you actually just have to like calm down sometimes and don't let the uh, club be run by your emotions. It, yeah, it's totally it, that. I, I you see the it, it's um, it's a crazy football's a crazy world. It really is, mate. It's I say to people, you know, it's absolute madness. And when I was working at the FA, I was there for four years, and I used to go and watch games as an FA coach, and I'd be sitting in the director's box and looking at the managers and in the technical area, getting all stressed and getting all emotional and getting carried away and arguing with fourth officials and jumping up and down and throwing bottles. And I used to get jealous. I used to think, wow, I want some of that madness again. I want to get back to that. And, and I'd speak to coaches and they'd say, oh, don't do it. Stay where you are. You're in a better place there. But I just had something in me that wanted to get back to that <coughs> craziness of, of first team football. But it, it is, you're totally right. The, the owners of clubs, they need to have a long-term view, but unfortunately they don't. You know, I go back to talk what we talked about earlier, where under fives and under six Everybody wants a trophy. Everybody wants to win. Well, unfortunately, every year there's probably there's only one team going to win the Premier League. There's only three teams going to be promoted from the Championship and three teams are going to come down out of the Premier. But if you've got a, a, a plan in place that you can stick to, that's that's the best thing. One of the things that the first time I got the sack was in my third management job when I was at Preston North End. And I went into the club and um, I, I followed a, a manager in called Billy Davis who took all of his staff with him, and which is fine, not a problem. He allowed me to bring my own staff in. And the um, chairman said to me, the whole club needs sorting out from top to bottom um, in terms of the first team. We need to continue winning games, <coughs> but we need to sort the academy out. Well, at the time, it was a centre of excellence. We need to sort the centre of excellence. The football in the community's just gone to pot. We need to sort all these things out. We think you're the man for it. So I signed, um, I think I signed a three-year contract originally. So I go in there. I'm like, right, okay. I'm going to bring these staff in. I interviewed staff for all these different roles, a new physio, new coaches, a new head of Centre of Excellence, an under-18s coach, a head of the football in the community. I brought all these new people in. And um, after about three or four months, we, we, were, we were going really well with the first team. They were doing well. I'd sold. Well, I didn't sell. I had to sell about three players, which brought about five or six million pounds in. Um, and I, I think I probably spent about two fifty, three hundred thousand to replace these players. And we were going really well. We went to the top of the league in the championship for the first time in Again, I think we're talking about 50 years. We'd never been to the top of the championship. Everything was going really, really well. I was really settling into the club. Chairman came to me and said, look, we're so happy with everything you're doing. Uh, We want to extend your contract. So I was like, yeah, whatever. It didn't make any difference to me. How long for? He said, well, we want it to be a five-year contract. I was like, yeah, crack on then, do it. And and I don't know if people understand when you... You sign a five-year contract, but you don't. If you get the sack, you don't get five years' money. You have a termination period in it where you get X amount of months out of it. You know, so it wasn't that I'm thinking, yeah, give me five years, and if I'm rubbish, I'll get a five-year payoff because it doesn't work that way. It certainly didn't work that way for me anyway. Um, so we we end up going to the end of the season. We had a really poor finish to the season. Um, I, I had injuries and. I think it's fair to say I didn't do very well with my with my free transfers that I picked up in the January window. I wanted to have a real go to, to try and push to get to the Premier League because of the financial gains for a club like Preston. They weren't prepared to do it. So again, as a manager, you have to accept that. And I, I brought in three... Uh, I brought in three free transfers, Michael Ricketts, Pavel Pergel from Czech Republic and um, an African player, a big centre-back, and I can't think of the guy's name. I'm really sorry um, if he's listening. Um, but I brought these three players in on freeze and we, we they weren't they, they didn't work for me. We had a poor finish of the season and we missed out on the playoffs, which really 
I have to take the blame for that because we weren't we weren't good enough towards the end of the season. So then when we start the next season, I've still got four years left on my contract because they're happy with the way I'm developing this football club and we've got young players doing well in the academy. We have a poor start to the season and I get the sack. And then about two managers later, I think um, Alan Irving followed me in and he got the sack and then Darren Ferguson took the job. And all of these young players who we'd got into the academy and we'd managed to nick from Everton and Liverpool and United and City in that northwest area suddenly started to develop, develop. And they're playing in the first team for Darren Ferguson when really that was my plan that I was going to be the manager who was going to bring these players through. So they had the long term thinking in giving me the five year contract, but then the short termism comes into it and the panic and I totally understand when results are not going well, the manager gets a lot of stick. And then when the chairman doesn't sack the manager, the chairman and the directors start getting stick. And the minute that happens, they don't want to be getting abused off football fans. So they react. And I was the one who got the sack for it. And again, I don't, I'd ever fell out with the chairman. We had a really good discussion around it. Um, I still speak to him now, whenever I bump into him and got no, got no animosity towards him, but I also just think, just keep calm. And it's that poem, isn't it, by Kipling? If you can keep your head while everybody else is losing theirs, then you've got half a chance of of creating um, a good football club. And the same happened at Derby County. When we went in, when Steve was the manager, we had a three-year plan. The first year was to develop a culture. Second year was to get the squad closer to what Steve wanted. And the third year was bang, we're going to go for a promotion. But because we got in the first year, we ended up getting to a playoff final. Suddenly everybody's expectations go through the roof and going, oh, well, we've got playoffs then, we've got to go one better, we've got to be promoted. And it doesn't always work that way. It takes time to to create the right football club. And, And unfortunately, Mel Morris made the decision that he thought he had the answers as to why we failed. So he sacked Steve and then I got the sack. And suddenly you've then got, who came in after Steve? Paul Clement came in and then Nigel Pearson and Gary Rowett and Darren Wassell was a caretaker and then Philip Koku. Steve McLaren went back again, so there's six. And this is just thinking off the top of my head. Um, we're now on to a, a seventh one with Wayne Rooney. How many managers can you keep changing to think that that's, that's the sole answer to it? It's not always the answer. There's something a little bit deeper and it takes a bit of time to create it. Yeah, I think you're right there. And, uh, and especially, I know he's Danish, but when I look at what they've done at the Brentford uh, yeah. with the Danish guy, Thomas uh, Frank, I remember when he got the job, he started losing games. And and at any other club, they would have sacked him after five or six months. They stood by him. They actually got to the playoffs twice and mm-hmm. didn't get promoted. And then the third time, because they knew they had a plan, they were doing well, they they got players in who were cheap and they sold some and earned some money, but they had a style of playing and you say like a good culture and they succeeded. Mm. Um, I think at most other clubs, he would have been sacked. Yeah, so, but I think Paul, it's really nice talking to you and, and uh, sorry. I was just going to say, I think Brentford is an absolutely perfect example of keeping your head and having a clear plan of what you want to do. And um, Thomas is a fascinating bloke when you speak to him. Brian is assistant, really two good guys who are very, very clear about how they want it done. The club know how they want it done. And they're stuck, even though it hasn't quite worked at times because they've lost playoff finals, but they've now got the reward. And I don't know how many years, I think Thomas has been there maybe four or five years um, in different roles, but now in the, in the head coach role. It's a clear plan that they've stuck to. They haven't deviated because results haven't gone quite the way and think, right, let's get him out. Let's do this. <clears throat> they've stuck to it and it's worked. And now it's absolutely brilliant to see a club like Brentford be able to go and compete in the Premier League and, and see how they can cope with it. So that is a real model that a lot of clubs could learn from. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, we talked for quite a long time. I only have uh, two more questions for you. Uh, and one of them, especially the one that I'm going to ask you now, I'm really, yeah, I would really like to hear what, what your thoughts are. If you are like a, 
a manager and you want to go into the game and like you said yourself you take your coaching badges you did a bit more like uh, with nutrition and all like that where do you think is the next area you have to go to as a manager to be on the uh, front foot and uh, of development in football where do you think the next development in football is going to be um of course a really strange one i i think the coaching badges give you your organisation. If you've got an idea of, of physiological demands that players go through when they play, and I think all of those are one thing. I think the biggest thing that people need, and I felt I benefited a little bit because I've got three children of my own that I've brought up who are now, 30, you know, 32, 30 and 26 year old. They're not, they're not little kids anymore, but I've, I've gone through that growing and that, that um, growing up experience with them. I think you have to understand young people if you're going into coaching. You have to understand how they work, how they think, and, and listen. I, I didn't understand how they thought. There's many times where they'd say something to me, I'm thinking, have you just spoke the same language as me? Because I haven't got a clue what you're saying. So I, I think it's really difficult, but I think that's the big thing. You have to understand how these young people, what life's like for them. You know, they they don't deal with being hammered in front of everybody else. <clears throat> they don't deal with being shouted at. You have to, you've got to learn a way to develop them and, and, and teach yourself. And I think that just comes through experience. For me, the biggest thing about coaching is not just having your badges, not just having your nice certificate that you can show everybody. You have to go and do the hours on the grass. You've got to learn and you've got to be prepared to make mistakes and you may you may go and set a possession up and, and, and it's directional and you, you get people in shape and stuff like this. And after a couple of minutes, you're thinking, wow, I've made this too small. But you've got to be brave enough to say, right, lads, this is stop. Just give us a minute, make it a little bit bigger. And then you learn, you think, right, the next time I do that, I'm going to do it by 40 by 30 instead of 30 by 20. And it's those little things that you've just got to be prepared to do. And at times you have that humility to go, sorry, I've made a mistake here. My fault. Um, and, and do it. And I think if you can show humility to the to the players that, that you've made a mistake, I think they're quite open to sometimes when you say, what happened there? What was what was the reasons that? Oh, that was me, Simo. I made a mistake there. That was me. I should have done this. I should. They're, they're prepared to go and show that humility and admit that they've made mistakes. So I think that's the big thing. I, I, I don't have a crystal ball where I can sit and look and think, right, in five years' time, this is what the game's going to be like. I, I just don't know that. But I think if we, as coaches, we can have an understanding of what makes the players tick, I think we've got half a chance of doing really well. Yeah, interesting. Uh, the last question uh, for you, uh, Simo, is like, what does uh, life at Bristol City look for? For you uh, at the moment, in the future, with the role you have, and and when do you hopefully expect to to get back to to coaching there? Well, at the moment, my role is um, basically sat at home doing Zoom calls with individual players. Or this week, they're going to Loughborough for um, for part of pre-season. I'm going to be joining in on the, again on the Zoom call um, to see some team building exercises that that the, we have a psychologist wants to do. So I'm doing that. I've been really fortunate. I started there with Dean Holden, who took me in. He used to be a player for me when the manager at Shrewsbury, and he wanted me because he basically I was an old git who, who he thought he could sort of glean some experience from. So I enjoyed that. Um, and then Nigel Pearson's come in, who's a very, very experienced manager. But he's given myself and the other uh, one of the other assistant coaches, Keith Down, and he gives us license to take the sessions. Um, he steps in and does the eleven v eleven, and obviously he's the, the focal point on a match day. But but I feel really involved with the coaching um, and 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 the, the sort of um, the, the technical and tactical stuff with the players. Um, I've got to. I'm, I'm currently isolating. Um, I've, I'll have the surgery and then I'm, ex well, I'm hoping that it's four to six weeks I should be back out on the grass. So maybe, maybe the start of September, if everything goes as well as I'm expecting it and hoping it too, I should be back on the grass. I'm hoping we've got off to a really good start to the season and then I can go and join in and just enjoy them doing well. <clears throat> but I'm watching training every day. I, I, it all gets put on huddle each day. And I watch the sessions and I give feedback to the coaches, what, what I'm seeing and, and where I think we need a bit more work doing. Um, and I hope 
I hope they take it the right way. It's definitely not a criticism. It's more a critique that um, we're trying to be better. I think if you can have, you know, I think if you can have open and honest conversations as coaches where you're going, right, well, I thought thought that went really well, but I didn't think that was that that went as well as we would have liked. I think you've got half a chance of developing. And, and again, that's something that I picked up at the FA where honest, open feedback is really important for, for people to develop as players and coaches. Sounds interesting. Thank you very much, Paul, for spending the time with me here on, on this uh, new podcast. Pleasure. Uh, and I hope uh, I hope uh, in the future I might uh, come back to you and you'll be happy to to join me again for another talk about manager's life and, and being a coach. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Great to speak to you and good luck with them all. <laughs>